Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another FUDS on Film podcast. I'm Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And also by Craig. Oh, I'm in visitation with a monster. Yes, indeed we are. We're not, however, talking about ghosts, as the ghost of Derek Akora would have you believe. Uh, but we are uh, following on from our classic uh, science fiction episode, which we just done there. We're going to talk about some classic monster movies, both released in the same year, back in 1954, from alternate sides of the Pacific, with Godzilla and them. We are kicking things off today with a look at Godzilla. So, Drew... What's that all about, in case you somehow haven't heard of Godzilla? <laughs> in case Godzilla is a mystery to you. Yes. As big as a gorilla, according to some. As big as a whale, like the B-50s to, B-52's car, according to others. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Are we adopting these tangents this early now? <laughs> This is even about Godzilla. <laughs> and it's about to set sail! Oh, God. Welcome, welcome to the Love Shack podcast. Oh, dear. Sorry, man. Yes, according to um, as big as a whale, like the B-52's car cord to others, the identity of the stagehand, or Toho Publicity Department employee, according to director Ishiro Honda, whose immense size created a portmanteau of Gurira, Gorilla, and Kujira Whale may be lost to time, but not the monster whose name he inspired, Gojira, anglicised, of course, to Godzilla. The legendary sea beastie, or Gorilla Whale, which is really what Godzilla means, which is weird, um, has appeared in more than 30 films, as well as TV series, comics, and even a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, which was terrible, naturally. How very dare you. (laughs) Also, have I offended your love for Godzuki? Yes, you have. Uh, we can talk about that in a bit. Carry on. However, it all began in 1954 with Ashiro Honda's Gojira, made just nine years after the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the immense destructive capability of which, along with the terrifying long-term invisible effects, are bound to have an effect on a country. As for the film, three Japanese vessels are lost at sea, with few survivors. Then fishing holes begin to disappear. Really, something funny is going on in the waters around Japan. Just what that is is discovered soon after, when the island of Odo, which is not a shape-shifting island, is attacked by a radioactive dinosaur. (laughs) An ancient creature disturbed from its slumber by United States undersea hydrogen bomb testing. The survivors flee to Tokyo, demanding help from the government, and on the meantime, vessels continue to be lost, and all attempts to harm the creature with depth charges fail. Eventually, the giant its loving reptile arrives in the Japanese capital, emerging from Tokyo Bay and laying waste to part of the city. All attempts to defeat it are fruitless, from tanks and machine guns to missiles, and even an enormous electric fence. While one prominent scientist pleads with the authorities not to attack Godzilla, but rather to study it and learn how it survives such a massive dose of radiation, his protégé must deal with the moral quandary of his discovery, a device that will certainly neutralise the beastie's threat and save what is left of the city, but will inevitably be turned into yet another uncontrollable weapon by those no-good bloody humans. For a monster movie, there's not actually a great deal of monster on show here. And it's not, I think, particularly surprising that the effects work of a 1954 film with a budget of only around $1 million doesn't hold up particularly well today. Though, 
To be fair to Toho's first outing, at no point does the titular monster look anywhere near as goofy as the googly-eyed initial incarnation from 2016 Shin Godzilla. But for a man in a big rubber suit, it's not actually awful, and it's aided by Honda's sparing use of the creature. Later entries in in the series may have demanded plenty of monster action, but in the original neither the characters nor the audience knew what Godzilla was, so both were on a journey of discovery. Rather, it's the model shots that have withstood the test of time particularly poorly. Well, I say model shots. Toys. They're they're toys. Mm. Uh, Particularly the mangled helicopter and the trains. Sound design, though, can go a long way in papering over cracks, and so it is here. Godzilla's roar is organic but alien, and would definitely put the right up you if you heard it in real life. But beyond the iconic creature, what stands out in Godzilla are the themes. There's a film paper, or ten, that could be written about the differences between the original Japanese Godzilla and US adaptations, especially in this first film. Godzilla represents the dangers of the nuclear age, particularly the incomprehensible destructive power of nuclear weapons. It is unstoppable, uncontrollable and life-threatening, a genie well and truly out of the bottle. In contrast, US takes if they referenced atomic bombs at all, did so sparingly, and saw Godzilla become a weapon, dangerous certainly, but the necessary evil against other aggressors. No subtext there at all, no survey. The Japanese produced films changed tack eventually, turning Godzilla into a hero and pitting it against other monsters, which is undeniably better if what you want to make is a monster movie. But if you want to actually say something, as it seemed Honda and the studio Toho did in the mid-1950s, then this is clearly a far better way to do it, though a touch more subtlety than Walking H-Bomb might have been nice. The earnestness of the film, and its very on-the-nose themes and metaphors, removes some of the watchability from it, at least for me, but it's a fascinating insight into the psyche of a nation and of the overriding and entirely legitimate fears felt by its populace. It's best to consider it apart from most of the sequels, with the exception of 2016 Shin Godzilla, which updated this film's central allegory from nuclear weapons to nuclear power in the wake of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, especially as it's what is left in Godzilla's wake, burning cities and irradiated children, that is the the true driver of emotion here. Long before James Cameron was making films, It was Godzilla, and what Godzilla represented, that truly was a force that can't be reasoned with, can't be bargained with, that it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and that absolutely will not stop, ever, until you are dead. If you like your monster movies with a heavy dose of introspection, existential fear and post-war commentary, then this is the monster movie for you. I prefer giant moths. Can it (laughs) deliver any of that? No, um, What can you recommend me? (laughs) <laughs> you're going to have to jump forward a decade or so if you want your giant moths I'm afraid and also your giant pteranodons your giant ankylosaurs your giant robot lizards mm-hmm. no, in the uh, best entry yeah it's just um, it's not quite the same in the 1950s I'm afraid I haven't really fleshed out that universe yet <laughs> the Godzilla cinematic universe yes uh, Godzilla is fun um, in a very kind of bleak way um <laughs> It's primarily... I'm pretty sure I must have seen this Godzilla, but a lot of the Toho stuff from this era has kind of run into each other and I only really remember the the big, silly men-in-suits battles of 
you know, a big lizard punching a big moth <laughs> and a big lizard punching an extra from the Beastie Boys Intergalactic. The effects uh, got worse. That's the strange thing about the series. The effects yes. got worse. Yes. Um, uh, there's... Uh, there's some okay effects working here, even for the time. I think some of the some of the composite work kind of holds up. It gave it a little bit of a an era believability. I can almost get behind it, you know, for the time. But yes, it's it is a very more serious take of it. It's obviously, you, uh, as you say, a fascinating insight into sort of Japanese psyche at the time, and uh, lots of interesting things going on in it. You can pick niggles about how maybe the characters don't quite hang together all that well. It's all a bit disjointed in some of the way that it does the kind of storytelling of that, and uh, that's not really so much of an important flaw because really everyone's acting under a lot of stress with a giant lizard that's going to kill them all, so I can forgive them that. Yeah, um, interesting three watch this, and it's certainly one of the stronger episodes. It's one of the only kind of Toho Godzilla films that's kind of works as a proper film and not simply a creature feature, so it's certainly interesting in that regard, and you can't argue with the uh, historical importance of it and just as a history lesson more than anything else to, to see the um, both of of the Godzilla franchise which has endured to this day and will do for at least a, another film uh, which is coming up this year probably mm. um, yeah so very interesting three watches from that kind of historical film aspect of it if nothing else but yeah I think it holds up as a very interesting film to this day yeah I really liked Godzilla I didn't I Bizarrely enough, I haven't seen this despite being obsessed with Godzilla as a child because of the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, which <laughs> Drew seems to dismiss so so readily for some reason. Because uh, 99% of all Hanna-Barbera put it's appalling. Oh yeah, it is appalling, absolutely. But when you're like eight years old, it's... it's oh, I liked it when I was a kid, yeah. I'm not a kid anymore, Craig, we've probably noticed. I was obsessed with Godzilla to the, when I was uh, eight, nine years old to the point where like, I would have recurring dreams about Godzilla being my friend. And to this day, we have a long-standing family joke, which I think we've I might have mentioned in a like a much earlier episode of the podcast about talking in my sleep about Godzilla and a, a, a certain phrase involving Godzilla that my sister still teases, still teases me about now, like 30, 35 years later. So I was kind of obsessed with Godzilla, but I'd never actually seen Godzilla. And it's very easy to dismiss Godzilla as a creature, um, as a sort of very kitsch, just... Uh, hokey monster movie series which certainly a lot of those later Toho entries are, although I still maintain that 1975's Terror of Mechagodzilla is a high <laughs> watermark for robotic giant lizards with spinning heads that shoot lasers um, I've yet to, yet, to see, yet to see that giant robotic lizard with a spinning head that shoots lasers be better if I'm honest with you um, but it would be very easy, and I think perhaps off the back of how kitsch and you know silly and campy those are, I hadn't really bothered to go back and ever watch the original movie, which is a shame. And I know it feels laboured and worn to talk about, oh, it's Japan reckoning with its place in history as the only country to ever been attacked by nuclear weaponry. But I'm at an age now where I kind of, you know, I... I have moments where I'll sit and just stop and think about stuff like that. And it's really quite profound if you think about it. And mm-hmm. people people look to art to channel their emotions. And if one considers that this is a film where an entire nation who were attacked with nuclear weapons and so far are still the only nation to have been so, look to a movie like this to try and rationalise the experience that they've had, then it's actually really quite profound. And not to be dismissed out of hand. And of course it looks kitsch now, but 
just that alone lends this film a certain gravitas that you can't really escape in viewing it now and i did actually quite enjoy it and i think you mentioned drew the the sound design of like the monster roar and what which i which i liked quite a bit i really appreciated the opening credits of this film because it was like really ominous in a way that a lot of modern movies would probably give their right arm to sound but yeah there's um there's a there's a certain uh, pathos um, to certain scenes in the film. There's a scene in particular where he's on the rampage in Tokyo where you see a, a mother sort of cowering in the street with her three daughters and she knows that they're basically going to buy the farm and she basically consoles her daughters by saying it's okay, we're going to be with daddy soon we're going to yeah. the place where daddy is and you think, oh god, yeah, this is not even a decade after these guys got absolutely pasted in the war and yeah, that's you a, know, just, half half a generation of young men got wiped out Yeah, but just when you start off saying like, you know, you know it's like it might seem like tiresome to be talking about it, like Godzilla is this you know, response to World War Two and things, but it was less than a decade. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and even now that's still a very profound thing. You know, we we still discuss now whether or not that was the right way to end a war, because you know uh, the the targets were not military; they were civilian. So this is this is essentially an entire nation pouring its soul into trying to come to terms with the experience that they've had. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, at the same time, there are other scenes which are, you know, look really campy now from an effects point of view, but the movie plays it absolutely straight. It's not a, it's not camp in the sense that the later films, you know, would be where they would just try and pile on the man in rubber suit action. This film is taking itself absolutely seriously. And you can imagine if the modern Godzilla movies were designed and uh, and manufactured in this way they would really be quite something i think they would it would still work quite well but unfortunately that's not what we've got and if you consider the sheer gravitas at the core of what this movie was attempting to do and then you look at the trailer for godzilla versus kong um oh, oh dear it's kind of an affront really that it's become that but this movie in and of itself in isolation I actually really quite enjoyed and there are moments in it that are still quite um, quite impactful and mm-hmm. well designed and, and well thought out uh, moments of sort of tragedy and terror although I, I would say you know when a boat sinks in mysterious circumstances don't send another boat after it and when that boat sinks don't send another boat after that to find out what happened and when that boat sinks don't send another boat after that to find out what happened and so on and so on but i also like to think that the electric fence idea uh, might have worked a bit better if they had renamed godzilla jimmy and had him actually trying to fetch a frisbee back from one of the pylons which uh, obviously we, we if you if you were in, That's a uh, there you go if you were in school in the uk in the late 70s early 80s then you'll know how effective that would have been um so yeah you know maybe you could have dealt with godzilla that way but or it's a really a carbon um carbon fiber fishing rod yes uh, or a kite it. you know yeah. um or maybe you could have gotten godzilla to try and uh, fetch a football from some train tracks or something like that uh but no i a really uh, much more interesting and uh, sort of profound experience than I was expecting. Um, is it the best made film? No. Um, although, is it undeniably probably one of the more important films in film history? There's probably an argument to be made for that thematically, but Certainly yes. in terms of like uh, against expectation, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think, and that's why I'd kind of 
made a fairly small part of my, my introduction to this. Was, I don't want to harp on too much about the special effects because whereas like I, I don't think they're campy at all. I think they're maybe a bit cheesy mm. um, and certainly quaint, but they're not campy, not in the way that like, the later entries became. But the, yeah. as I said as well, they're used sparingly. Yes, and they're well planned and executed for the time as well. Yes, um, and there are some good bits, like the um, the animation put on top of the scales to show that he's mm. uh, it is, the the gender's never specified in Japanese films. But it is about to use um, atomic breath or whatever atomic it is. Breath, yeah, things like that. And there's wee bits there, and as I said, some of the composed and like even just the mm. like when it begins, it's bad. But when they like the pylons along the street to show it's like it's like defence at first, yes, it's floating. But after that, then it's like actually no, more or less works. Um, it's weird though. Just I'm just going to jump on to like what this the series spawned, particularly the US stuff. Uh, the Roland Emmerich film is appalling. I really enjoyed Godzilla, King of the Monsters, um, because mm. that's just that's very much not this. It's more just is like, that the Gareth Edwards one. No, it's the 2016 one or 2018 one. The, the one that's not right. terrible. Okay, the last one. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, when he's fighting King Godira. Uh, right, I've not seen that one. It's just well, that is, that was a, just a really good monster movie, right? And it's like that got the the time. It's like okay, it wasn't trying to say anything at all. It was like a monster movie, and so what you want there is to show the monsters all of the time, and it basically showed the monsters all of the time. Whereas the Gareth Edwards one is appalling because it tries to do what the original Godzilla did with you know, sparing use of the monsters and trying to... It, it clearly thought it was like Jaws or something. Except that all of the time spent away from Godzilla is with the dullest people in the world, including Aaron Taylor... Um, what is his Johnson. name? Vicodin or something. Ambien. <laughs> Aaron Taylor Ambien. Um, it's just like the, one of the least charismatic people you, you could imagine seeing on screen. And nothing interesting happens with any of the humans. And people were calling it something of a masterpiece at the time. Like, nope. And I watched it again before the most recent one came out. And like, yeah, this is still appalling. It's a really dull film because they've taken Godzilla out of it. Haven't really added anything in to say. It's like not any other film has already said before and much better. And like, yeah, we've just got some dull humans for 90% of the running time. Yeah. Uh, 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 where's this uh, one? Like... It, it's very much not a monster film. It, it spawned a whole series of them. Mm. It's not actually a monster film. Godzilla's just this, this threat, um, and it's what the humans are doing, how they're responding, how it came about that's important. Mm. And I mean, it's very much there's. I mean, Scott Polly, um, like this, because of uh, his common use of that Garth Marenghi quote about writers using subtext, but there's no subtext in um, Godzilla, really. It's all very on the surface, mm-hmm. but they're all very valid comments to make. And particularly, again, less than a decade after the two atomic... Not just one, two atomic bombs were dropped in that country. Mm-hmm. Manus, I would also just like to point out, Drew, that for the second time tonight, you've dismissed something quite readily. So, at uh, first it was the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla cartoon, and now it's the career of Aaron Taylor-Johnson. A career <laughs> which... Actually, if you would give him space and time, you would understand he's part of a temporal pincer movement. <laughs> <laughs> so, all I entirely forgot he was in that film because he's so um, weird, he's, mockney. He's, he's so he's so <laughs> a person with a face. Aaron Tyler Johnson from the future is coming to meet Aaron Tyler Johnson from the past, and both careers will meet. 
in a temporal <laughs> pincer movement. <laughs> he really can the screen maintain such charisma mm. of two such entities on screen at the same time? He's distracting us now as we move forward in time by being <laughs> but good Aaron Taylor Johnson is currently coming back through time. <laughs> <laughs> to resolve this to resolve this issue that you have in person so you better watch out Drew he's also um, in one of the Avengers films in which he is fast that, that, that's as much in oh is, he isn't he an Ultron fast isn't yes. he yes yeah. he's, he's not Quicksilver in Ultron he's he's fast that, that's, is it. It. that's the only thing I remember seeing him in it for like 30 seconds ago and isn't that oh he's gone I'll never know <laughs> well he was fast so. <laughs> he was fast However, we're not comparing and contrasting Aaron Johnson's forwards, uh, temporarily forwards and temporarily backwards careers tonight, are we? We're not. Um, I'm going to hazard a, um, a comment that that's a good thing and we're on board with that. Yes. We haven't made a terrible mistake in the setup of this episode. Well, who wants to talk about giant ants? Yes, so Avengers, Sage of Ultron. Um, so, them. Uh, while Japan was dealing with the aftermath of having nuclear bombs dropped on them, even before the full onset of the Cold War and the shadow of mutually assured destruction, there was a concern in America about the responsibility of having opening the atomic edition of Pandora's box as well. Thus, them, also released in 1954, where James Whitmore's New Mexico police sergeant Ben Peterson is tasked with figuring out what's causing a trail of destruction and death out in the desert, including a holidaying FBI man. This brings James Arnes's special agent Robert Graham on board, and before long, for reasons unclear to the detectives, but as transparent to an audience that's seen the poster, myrmecologist Edmund Glenn's Dr Harold Medford and his daughter, Joan Weldon's Dr Pat Medford. At the risk of shortcutting this a bit too radically, they work out that the trouble has been caused by ants of unusual size, which brings with it unusual strength and ferocity. Thanks, Oppenheimer. Now you have become death, maker of large ants. The authorities work quickly to eradicate this threat, but discover that two new queens have already flown the nest, and so begins a race against time to track down and destroy them before humanity is supplanted as the dominant species, ending, as things so often do, in a Los Angeles storm drain. This was a massive success for Warner Brothers on release, and I want to say up front that I did quite enjoy watching this, but it is hard to check the decades-long accumulation of creature-feature genre baggage at the door and take this entirely at face value. I mean, it's only a couple of decades later than this, and its genre mates have been parodied out of existence by the likes of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and replaced in cinemas by disaster films which is ironic as most disaster films follow fairly similar action and pacing pathways as these films just replacing the giant ants or whatever with fire or water or just bees of a normal size (laughs) (laughs) mutating neutrinos Uh, Anyway, a lot of them is not about taking a flamethrower to a delightfully chintzy toy ant and is instead something more akin to a criminal manhunt headed by David Attenborough and you know what? I'm here for it. Um, It's refreshing to see this played entirely straight and with the obvious exception of the Oscar-nominated special effects and scientific understanding of radiation on DNA, it doesn't feel all that dated. Well, okay, it does, but not in a bad way. And even voice later developed tropes such as the needlessly obstructive superior officer not allowing something just to inject a bit of human drama into the film. Um, is it essential viewing in Space Year 2021? Um, <laughs> while the continued existence of uh, the continued endurance of Godzilla makes viewing the original worthwhile historical exercise, the Western arm of creature features has long been dead, except in King Kong, of course. Still. It's nice to see what, arguably, launched a thousand imitators and popularised and normalised the subgenre so much that it eventually burned out. It's an easy, breezy watch that doesn't outstay its welcome, so go for it. Why not? Yeah, I um, I was actually really looking forward to this, uh, particularly because I remember 
loving playing a game from the desert cinemaware game on my Amiga back in the day, <laughs> which I was terrible at. I could never um, I consistently shoot the ant's antennae often enough and just died. <laughs> the film did have an attractive nurse. The game did have an attractive nurse and that was an important thing at the time. <laughs> it was all we needed back then. We made our own entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> but I was looking forward to that for that and actually simply as a piece of entertainment, I enjoyed this more than Godzilla. Mm. Um, however, Godzilla clearly has things to say. Well, it's not that this film has nothing to say, um, but it's a bit more obvious. It's a bit like all this radiation. We don't really know what it could do. We should probably be careful. Um, I was like, yeah. Godzilla's got a, a lot more underpinning its ideas. But for all that, it, it's entertaining. And I do like the fact it is it's kind of like more of like an investigation and like, well, a lot of the science and it's not going to stand up to rigor. They did try to like, put something in there it's at least kind of have this at least had as much kind of truthiness to how it sounded as anything you'd get in star trek yeah you know <laughs> it's the right kind of words the tone like it wasn't just you know some sort of roland emmerich nonsense actually i'm honestly quite surprised it didn't have the mutated mutated neutrinos be caused by nuclear explosions or something because i would have actually tied it into quite nicely to this but and to other films yeah it's I think the problem is that, that genre, uh, as with Godzilla too, is like, it very quickly got into campy silliness. Yeah. Whereas this is earnest, but you're very entertaining for her. <clears throat> I certainly, I'm having been on familiar with this now, I, I'm thinking, I have to bring up James Cameron again, actually. Like, I'm thinking a certain character, one of his films may have had uh, an analogue in here. Because the ants, they mostly come at night, mostly. Oh. Right, okay. What what species are you guys, man? Because 20 minutes into this film, I was experimenting with different glues that I have in the kitchen drawer to try and keep my f***ing eyelids open, man. This, um, this is a film in which the action consists of people shooting bazookas at sand. And, like, no, genuinely, I mean, obviously, again, okay, yep, the use of the atomic weapons, uh, okay, Japan really were d- desperately seeking some sort of reconciliation between their experience and, and their future. And the Americans, in terms of how seriously they were taking the responsibility having wielded those weapons, not so much. Um, like, I was convinced I had seen this film before, and it turns out that actually I'd only seen about three minutes of this film uh, and the rest I was conflating with it came from the desert because like you drew I was incredibly bad at that game uh, although I remember it so vividly that even even now I can still remember the musical loop for O'Reardon's uh, pub or bar or whatever it was, a diner, I think, in that game. It sometimes crops into my head and I can't get rid of it. It becomes an earworm for like a week. Um, so it turns out that I hadn't seen a lot of this film and it, I feel like I would have been a lot better off if I hadn't. I don't think there's a great deal of merit in this at all and it suffers from that fantastical problem, although... Uh, I say a problem, but I think there's a lot of films nowadays that would benefit from this of, as they're making their way into the nest uh, towards the end of the film, you look at the timer and you go, this film's got two minutes left. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening here? And films of this period just really didn't know how to pace their resolution all that much. And so what you get here is some people stumbling into a nest and the professor going, yes, yes, we can be sure that's all of them. Kill them. (laughs) Well, that was a thing that happened, wasn't it? We can never be sure what's going to happen in the future with nuclear weapons. Never mind. Everything's okay now. Din, 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 din. The end. 
what? Come again? Uh, yeah, just a really weird experience for me, and I didn't enjoy it at all, contrary to you fellas. I know what you're saying about, I, I know you're not making a case for it as great art, but I just don't think there's anything to enjoy about this film at all. And I, I'm slightly baffled by your viewpoint, but it's okay. <laughs> it's no Avengers Age of Ultron. but <laughs> No, no. <laughs> It's no Aaron Taylor Johnson flick. That's the film that had Aaron Taylor Johnson and James Spader in it. I'm like, but can I, why it was so bad. Can I can I point out though that these ants do have an impressive pincer movement? Oh. <laughs> I think we need to end it there. Um, Shall we? I can't go on from that really. It's only going to go downhill from here. That's a logical end of everything really. Um, it's been nice knowing you. Uh, we won't be back. This is it. It's all gone. Uh, yes, if you would like to get in touch with us, then please do. You can do so uh, through the emails at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or Facebook at facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or Twitter at fudsonfilm. And if you don't want to do any of that, then can't help you. Sorry. So until next time, take care of yourself and each other. I'll bid you adieu, and I'm sure that these guys will do. Up from the depths, 40 stories high, Craig Eastman. Hi. Hi. <laughs>